Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we get an update on what is happening on the ground in Haiti. What role is the U.S., Canada, and other countries who are part of the so-called core group playing in Haiti right now? And Haiti, at the end of February, just marked the anniversary of the Haitian Revolution, as well as the U.S.-backed coup against Haiti's first democratically elected president, Jean-Breton Aristide. What impact does this history have on what is going on in Haiti today? The most economically impoverished in the Americas. Let us go to a clip right now of Pierre Leboisier, a co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee from a talk that he gave in Los Angeles. Our brothers and sisters in Haiti have been denied since our foremothers and forefathers were kidnapped in Africa and forced into slavery. Our people have never stopped struggling as human beings demanding their right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Meaning what? Food, clean water, education, the right to live, the right to enjoy the fruit of their labor, not just to labor for somebody to make a plantation owner rich. And I know people here can relate to that because you fought your way out of slavery too, just like the people, the Africans in Haiti. We are one people. The boat just made many stops. We could be related, we could be kin, but because of the way they separated us, so now we end up, some of us are Jamaicans, some of us are Trinidadians, some of us are blacks in the US, you know, African-Americans or however, whatever, but we can relate, we need to relate to each other's struggles. So what's going on right now on the ground? As our people are demanding that their human rights be respected, that they have access to education, that they have access to clean water, that they be able to vote for the person that they choose or for the people they choose to represent them. There was a coup d'etat that the Bush administration did in 2004, and I'm going to 2004 because this is what's going on today. So the people never accepted the coup d'etat. Over 10,000 people were murdered during that period. Many others are serving to this day as food for sharks in the ocean. Some of us are ending up on the border right there of Tijuana. Many of them have, have tried, have been killed trying to cross the desert. Many of them have gone from Brazil all the way to the Tijuana border. I spoke to some of them who told me that they witnessed some brothers and sisters dying on the way as they were crossing those borders. Why? Why is this happening to us as black people? Why? Because we dare to dream. We dare to say, I am somebody that I'm a human being, that my life matters. So the people of Haiti are determined and they haven't stopped struggling. And that was Pierre Labossier uh, speaking uh, sometime back in Los Angeles. Now, why is the core group, the so-named core group that includes the US, Canada, France, we hear a lot about the proliferation of weapons getting into the hands of so-named gangs, which some refer to as the new death squads. But where do these weapons come from? How do they fall into the hands of impoverished youth? 
How is the movement on the ground responding to all of this? What can those of you who want to be in solidarity with the movement for democracy in Haiti do? Also today on our weekly Earth Watch, we discuss the contradictions in the U.S. government plans to log old forests on public lands, while at the same time claiming old forests should be protected for climate mitigation. Our guest is Michael Collette, founding executive director of Restore the North Woods, also our weekly Earth Minute. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truths and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. The U.S. has launched airstrikes in Syria, killing at least 11 people, according to the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, an opposition war monitor. The Pentagon says the precision strikes were in retaliation of a suspected Iranian-made drone that killed a U.S. contractor and wounded five American troops and another contractor. The strikes, the U.S. strikes hit three separate cities and reportedly targeted facilities used by groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. The deadly exchange threatens to upend recent efforts to de-escalate tensions across the Middle East, whose rival powers have made steps towards detente in recent days against years of turmoil. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin said in a statement the American intelligence community had determined the drone was of Iranian origin, but offered no other evidence to support the claim. The strike comes after U.S. lawmakers failed to pass a war powers resolution to withdraw some 900 troops from Syria. Syria's civil war between U.S.-backed Turkish and rebel opposition forces and Russian and Iranian-backed government have killed some 300,000 civilians since the war began in 2015. Israel's attorney general is warning Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu he violated the Supreme Court's conflict of interest ruling for negotiating a law that would shield him from the high court amidst a corruption trial Netanyahu's undergoing. Today's warning comes as Netanyahu's far-right ruling coalition passed a law that would protect him from being deemed unfit to rule because of his corruption trial and claims of a conflict of interest led by the nation's highest court. The move has sparked widespread civil unrest across Israel, and it's followed Netanyahu as he visits the United Kingdom's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, in London today. The AP's Charles de la Desma reports. Well, Mr. Netanyahu, your own attorney general says you're breaking the law. Netanyahu's visit to London comes as Israel faces a national crisis over his government's plans to overhaul the judicial system. As thousands of people took to the streets of Israeli cities on Thursday, Netanyahu, who's on trial for corruption, has defiantly pledged to proceed with the overhaul, which gives Israel's most right-wing coalition in history more control over judicial appointments, weakens the Supreme Court by limiting judicial review of legislation, and allows Parliament to overturn court decisions with a simple majority. 
I'm Charles Duladesma. In the U.S., the CEO of TikTok faced a grilling from lawmakers in a five-hour hearing on the controversial social media app. Some lawmakers are proposing a ban on the company, which is in part based in China, over concerns the app could be weaponized by the Chinese Communist Party to collect private data, spread misinformation, or even influence a presidential election. Christopher Martinez has more. In his opening statement, TikTok CEO Sho Chu said TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is not owned or controlled by the Chinese government, but rather is private, based in Los Angeles and Singapore. And he added TikTok is not even available in China. Chu offered several commitments to the committee and TikTok users. Number one, we will keep safety, particularly for teenagers, as a top priority for us. Number two, we will firewall protected U.S. data from unwanted foreign access. Number three, TikTok will remain a place for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government. And fourth, we will be transparent and we will give access to third-party independent monitors to remain accountable for our commitments. There's no real evidence that TikTok has ever shared data with the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party, but concerns are widespread. Republican Congressmember Michael McCall of Texas recently called TikTok a spy balloon in your phone. Chu's testimony did not appear to sway any minds on the Commerce Committee, where taking on TikTok seemed almost a surrogate for confronting China. I'm Christopher Martinez. The Nebraska legislature has voted to advance a contentious bill that would ban gender-affirming care for minors. The vote came despite threats from some lawmakers they would filibust the rest of the session in protest. Meanwhile, Georgia will ban most gender-affirming surgeries and hormone replacement therapies for transgender people under the age of 18, with a new bill signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp Thursday. Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds has signed a pair of laws restricting the bathrooms transgender students can use and banning gender-affirming medical care. The World Athletics Council has voted to ban transgender track and field athletes from international competition. The council also adopted new regulations that could keep other athletes with differences in sex development from competing. In a pair of decisions expected to stoke outrage, the World Athletics Council adopted the same rules as swimming did last year in deciding to bar athletes who have transitioned from male to female and have gone through male puberty. No such athletes currently compete at the highest elite levels of track. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. Those were our news headlines and today we're going to kick off our show with an update with what is happening on the ground in Haiti. Uh, some of you who have truth for a while, you may recall that I was on the ground with a former assistant producer, uh, Romero Funes, a few years back. We were the first journalists, international journalists, to go into La Saline, where a massacre uh, had taken place. I want to play a clip now of women who survived that massacre speaking out. Why play that clip? Because we're seeing a replay. We're seeing a rerun of what happened in last section of Port-au-Prince called Bel Air. Let's go to that clip right now. My name is Setania Jamari. 
My husband was killed when they were burning my house. I have two kids. I have nothing for them. I don't have clothes. I don't have water. I don't have food for them. I would like, the only thing I'm asking now is I'm asking for justice for what was happening in Lasarin because I lost everything and now I don't have anything. Only what we have, when we have some water, we have to share it. And anything we have, we have to share it. And now, I am sleeping on the floor, not next to the sea. I don't have house, I don't have husband, I don't have anything. Her name's Louis Miliana. Those people sleeping on the floor next to the sea in Noav Jeremy, in La Saline, in Mateli. The place names is Mateli. So they are sleeping on the floor. No, 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 no home, no food, no, not there. There's nothing for their kids, but the, they are the real victim of the massacre. Her name's, her name's Janet Jasme. This is her kid that was killed during the massacre in La Saline. And she, has, she had only two kids. This is the first one that they killed in the massacre. So she's, she's now feeling a, a pain. She cannot talk because if you see her body, as she said, if you see her body, you will see what pain she has because all her body has a lot of thing on it. She doesn't want to remove them, but now she is suffering of a lot of illness. Yeah, I know that is really, really hard uh, to listen to. But this is the reality of what is happening on the ground today in Haiti, even though that was from a previous uh, survivors of a previous massacre in La Saline. Women uh, very movingly speaking out about the impact on themselves and their families. Uh, a sad situation going on uh, right now with an uh, ongoing massacre that has happened in La Saline. Now here to discuss all this and fill us in on what is going on, we'd like to welcome back Pierre Labossier, who is a co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee. Pierre hails from the south of Haiti, and he's a very, very well-respected, both in Haiti as well as in the United States, for his work on human rights and for democracy in Haiti. Yes, thank you very much, Margaret. Uh, thank you for having me on the show once again. Wanted to say okay. that um, the situation there is just... Uh, Pierre, before we go into the situation, let me also welcome Seth, who will be on the show with you, okay? And then we'll, we'll get into the discussion. Uh, Seth Donnelly, who is based in uh, Northern uh, California. Seth um, is also member actually with me on the ground in La Saline. In fact, a few of my visits uh, to Haiti, uh, Seth Donnelly has been there. He is a school teacher up in Northern California. And for many, many years, he has been working in a true solidarity um, for the movement for democracy on the ground. He's visited Haiti several times. He's organized for his students to also do some really good solidarity work in relation to the grassroots movement in Haiti. Seth Donnelly, Thank you, welcome. Yeah, now we will, we will start with you. And let us begin by you telling us what is happening in Bel Air, what has been going on recently. 
in yes, Bel Air. Yes, thank you once again, Margaret. And uh, for Bel Air, Bel Air is a community, uh, is a neighborhood of Port-au-Prince, right in the heart of downtown Port-au-Prince, near the National Palace. And you you just walk over and you are in Bel Air, and uh, it's it's a very short distance. So for the past weekly being a center of resistance because it's mostly working class folks, folks who try to make a living as best they can, you know, with small businesses and um, very active, very proud people. And they have always been uh, demanding their rights going way back uh, to the dictatorship before the dictatorship of Padoc Duvalier. There was a massacre in Bel Air because they were supporters of a progressive um, president. He was only president for two Bel Air were massacred by the Haitian military because after two weeks, Fignolet was um, overthrown and the people of Bel Air protested that. And so the milita Haitian military massacred them. But that has never stopped them for demanding their rights, for demanding that the taxes they pay uh, or return to them in terms of services, such as schools, hospitals, um, uh, cleaning, sanitation, uh, clean drinking water, all the stuff that people provide them with in terms of services for their tax dollars. And so um, Bel Air was, uh, didn't stop, this tradition has never stopped, this political revolutionary stand that they have has never stopped. And so for the past four years, bringing it to the present, uh, they've been that community has been staunch supporters of the Formula Valas political party and uh, political organization, I should say. And so about four years ago, they've been steadily an nine death squad federation. And this is uh, what they call in the corporate media gangs. And people will see that, but their official name, they, they were federated uh, by none other than the Haitian government, according to one of the government officials who said that and also the UN representative of the Secretary General, Ellen Lalim, stated that uh, she welcomed that federation because wherever they were active. Now remember, these are, these are gangs, okay? Homicide has gone down. While she was saying that the G9 was actually attacking the people of Bel Air and committing um, more atrocities and burning homes at the same time that the uh, Ellen Lalim, the representative of the UN Secretary General in Haiti, was saying this thing. So for the past four years, the G9 Federation and also one of the member groups of that called Crash Edifé, which is called Spitfire, roughly translated in English, basically this group of various uh, witnesses and people on the ground. And so they've been um, very uh, terrorizing the population as well. Uh, an example of terror of the terror that they inflict on the population, they post snipers on top of houses in order to shoot at people when they cross a particular street where they dominate the area. And so a number of people have been killed, people have been injured. At different times, they have attacked the community, burning homes, including burning people alive or disabled who was burned in his bed. Also, you had the spectacle of, uh, of uh, the tragedy of an older woman who was thrown from the second floor of her house onto the ground, and it took the population to pelt them with rocks and bottles and to really save this woman. And uh, she was uh, taken to a hospital. Fortunately, she had survived at the time. So this is, and so for the past four years, the people have been living consistently with these repeated attacks. 
at the January 28th, which is the anniversary of the coup d'etat against President Aristide, the second coup d'etat that overthrew the government of Fami Lavalas. And this coup d'etat was headed by the United States, France, Canada, and later on other countries from the UN came in to um, establish an occupation in Haiti to, to make sure the coup d'etat succeeded. And so there were many, many massacres that occurred since that time. And so the people of Belo years, this, this repeated, repeated attacks have been taking place against the community. So February 28th, the G9 Federation, again headed by a man named Jimmy Cherizier, former policeman trained by the United Nations Occupation Forces. They trained him, and so this attack was led. And according to various survivors, various witnesses, including the media, there were APVs. These are armored personnel accompanying this gang leader, quote unquote, and that's how the press refers to him as well, but we call him a death squad leader from the right wing. And he was attacking the population alongside of the police. The, the APVs were shooting at residents and the APVs were transporting members of the G9 Federation, transporting them. And according to various witnesses, again, uh, they would open the doors and the, those G9 members would pile out with gasoline, going homes, uh, burning down, hacking people to death with machetes and uh, shooting them. And, uh, and I've seen some horrible footage of people being burned alive. And this is, this is horrific stuff that uh, these people have been doing. And it's been going on. And the people of Bel Air have consistently called for help. They have consistently asked that uh, the police come and support them. But they said very, it never happened, almost never. There was one instance where they had posted a little um, and they quickly left the area. And so the people have been left to their own. And so this massacre, it's been estimated that from February 28th, until March uh, 4th, and it actually, these attacks didn't stop, the, the main attack didn't stop until Women's Day, International Women's Day on March 8th. But it's been estimated that over 60 people have been killed. 50 people were taken alive and are presumed disappeared because no one has ever heard of them. They are one of the most atrocious ways, either by fire or by being stabbed to death, and this is the, re the reports that people are getting, at least that I've been getting from the media in Haiti, uh, mostly online media, and also from uh, people who are witnesses or survivors of this horrific tragedy that's unfolding in Haiti. But the worst part, Margaret, is that I haven't seen any institution, or I should say from what I haven't seen any other Haitian government the government of Ariel Henry, who the Haitian people are blaming directly as being involved in, in those massacres, in those operations that are taking place. There hasn't been not one note of condolence to the people, no acknowledgement that any of this is happening, whereby this is within earshot of the national palace and of the seat of the various government authorities. Neither did I see anything from the United Nations representative either that um, that um, it, it's it's something else. So there is no way for people not to have known. And given the level 
of the exposure of this uh, all over in um, social media networks. This thing, the horrific uh, videos are being shown. Statements are being made. Uh, we have women in Haiti who have made statements. Um, we have other organizations from the North and the South that have made statements. And so it's, it's all over. But there hasn't been Ariel Henry, the dictator of Haiti, imposed by the United Nations and the US occupation forces who are supporting him. To this day, they haven't said a word about this. When, Whenever right. an official uh, dies in some other country or something, they are the very first among the very first to send notes of condolences. This is so shameful. It's outrageous. Indeed, Pierre. And uh, for those here, Lavoisier, uh, who hails from the south of Haiti, and he is a co-founder of the Haiti Action uh, Committee, describing uh, the horrors, the massacres going on in uh, Bel Air, the Bel Air area of uh, Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti. And just to remind our audience too, he made reference to Lavalas. Uh, Lavalas, the head of Lavalas is indeed Jean-Bertrand Aristide, uh, the president who was um, so, uh, what I'd like to do now is to bring uh, Seth Donnelly into this discussion. Now, Seth, what Pierre described is very similar, isn't it, to what you and I heard from witnesses uh, who survived the massacre in uh, La Saline. And uh, Seth, back then, the president was Jovenel Moïse, who has now been assassinated. Now you have in place Ariel Henry, who was actually selected by Jovenel Moïse before he was assassinated. He's not elected by anybody in Haiti. And, uh, you know, there, like we heard in La Saline, we're hearing that his government, um, and we could tell by the armored vehicles that Pierre described going into uh, Bel Air, are not only well aware of these massacres, supporting it, even indirectly. Um, why do you think um, that Barbecue or Jimmy Chazer, uh, he has not been arrested? He's the head of the, the G9. And now he is going into um, Bel Air. And why do you think that community is so under attack? And your thoughts on um, the role of the US-Canada right now yeah Seth. well you know described so powerfully and it just uh it is like you said margaret it is almost a replica of what happened in la saline in over a week period in mid-november 2018 but the those two massacres are part of a whole pattern of massacres that have happened after the 2004 coup um i can remember being in, in cite soleil the day after a horrific massacre in um that occurred uh, uh, to the community the following day with a Haitian journalist and a Haitian human rights team. And that massacre was directly perpetrated by the UN occupation forces. Um, dozens of people killed, um, shot in their own um, homes. Uh, 
small shacks in the Cite Soleil for the listeners is one of the most impoverished communities in the entire hemisphere. It's a huge area right by the seaside shanty, right by the right where the port is. And the UN came in and just blasted it in the name of going after a gang member. Um, so many um, since then that's that are well documented, for example, in Kevin Pina's excellent documentary, We Must Kill the Bandits. What is the pattern? The pattern is that the neighborhoods being targeted from Cite Soleil to La Saline to Bel Air today are popular impoverished neighborhoods that are bases of support for former President Jean Bertrand Aristide. These are Lavalas neighborhoods that are on the front lines of nonviolent activism calling for the restoration of true democracy in Haiti. Um, And this media wants to confuse the picture, the mainstream media, by having it portrayed it as gang conflict today, for example, in Bel Air or in La Saline. It's not. It's just as much a state-sanctioned massacre as the one that happened in Cite Soleil in 2005. The difference is today that the occupation forces and the Haitian police that are completely funded to the teeth by the United States government are functioning with surrogates, with paramilitary surrogates, death squads like the G9 and uh, and so I think that context is essential to understanding that this is a war that the government installed by the United States that has been nurtured under the UN occupation that this PHTK, that's the name of the ruling party, the PHTK regime is carrying out the same repressive function that we've seen ever since the 2004 coup. Absolutely. And, and Pierre, you know, one of the things I said in the intro at the, the top of the hour to the show is there are a lot of weapons in that folks on the ground that are members of what the mainstream media called gangs. And you and I refer to as death squads, similar to the Tontomakut of the brutal uh, Duvalier dictatorship. Um, your thoughts on this, because you have uh, impoverished youth in places like City Soleil and other parts of, of Haiti that uh, somehow are getting their hands on these weapons, the G9, no-named federation <laughs> lauded by the uh, UN and, and, and the US uh, seem to have a lot of weapons. So meanwhile, in the US press, we hear again and again and again, oh, there's all the gangs are in charge of Haiti and there's all this violence going on, et cetera, all of which is true, poverty going on. But where are people getting the money from to buy these weapons? Where are these weapons coming from? Pierre, your thoughts on who might be behind um, this on the popular movement in Haiti, Pierre Lavoisier. Margaret, to almost, I would say, to all Haitians, and let me say to the great majority of Haitians, it's very clear. And the UN came out with a report saying that the weapons are coming from the US. The majority, the all the weapons really are coming from the US. And they have identified Florida as the place where the weapons are coming from. These weapons are expensive. We are talking about assault rifles, very sophisticated. 
And the thing is, many of those so-called gang members, the death squad members, young young men, they are. You can see that they are not doing well economically because they are in sandals. Their clothes are not the best, and uh, there is no way that they would have money to buy these. And they take videos of themselves showing of those weapons and showing the quantities. Plural, just at the drop of a hat, just spray bullets everywhere and spilling them. And these are people who you can tell are not in the, are not, you know, doing well economically. Haiti makes no weapons. So there is no way these things are coming from, and according to various media accounts, there are powerful people in the private sector, in the business sector, among the business elite in Haiti, that is facilitating those weapons coming in. And so recently we've had Canada take sanction has taken, uh, has named them to, hasn't named them, but has announced that it has a list of sanctions that it's imposing uh, it will be imposing on people bringing in weapons, but many Haitians feel that this is just for public relations consumption, because these things should have could have been stopped. For example, when President Aristide had returned from the first coup d'état, he had instituted a program of disarmament in Haiti, and weapons that were in the hands of the Tonton and actually taken, and many of them were dis destroyed, supposedly. They were collected by the U.S. military. Uh, some had um, some, so what happened was with all those weapons, so Haiti was supposed to be free of weapons. And for a long time, even when President Aristide wanted to arm the Haitian police, the newly constituted police, which consisted of about 5,000 men and women at the time, about a thousand of embargo on Haiti, which is still in effect today. But all of a sudden, since the occupation of Haiti by the UN following the coup d'etat of 2004, the place is being, and as recently, um, uh, since 2010, been overwhelmed with all kinds of weapons that are finding their way through the airport, through the port facilities in Haiti, across the border with the Dominican Republic, when the US has full control of this entire, in a sense, with full control. So it's, it's no secret for every Haitian that what is going on is a systematic plan, is a planned war against the people of Haiti. They used to call it low intensity warfare back in the day. And I believe that's a good, um, there is nothing low or in low intensity about it for the masses of our brothers and sisters in Haiti who are being killed, whether in the rural areas where the peasants are being forced off their land, there is people off their lands, kicking people off their homes in order to take them over for whatever reason. And so um, this, this attack, these attacks, systematic campaign of terror and running people away from, from the rural areas, lands that they own, they are, they are just abandoning them uh, from houses in neighborhoods where they are, like in La Saline and places like that, being worn out. And so what happens is the population, um, that's why we see this massive influx of various countries of the Caribbean, South America, 
and ending up on the U.S.-Mexico border. So it's all connected with this campaign of terror against the Haitian people. All right. Uh, we are going to take a short station break. And when we return with Seth Donnelly and Pierre Boissier about the situation on the ground happening right now in Haiti. And uh, also, right after our station break, we will actually do our weekly Earth Minute. And later in the hour, we will be speaking with Michael uh, Collette, who is the founding executive director of Restore the Northwoods. That's for our weekly Earth Watch segment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Yes, Welcome back to Sojourner Trend to KPFK 90.7 FM in Southern California. If you have missed any part of this hour from 10, from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety and you can subscribe to a free pod. Like and friend us on Facebook, our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. And you can also check out our website at sotrueradio.org. Uh, we are going to be continuing our discussion with Seth Donnelly and Pierre Labos, our weekly Earth Minute. On February 27th, more than 1,500 members of the Brazilian Landless Workers Movement, MST, occupied three areas owned by Brazilian paper and pulp company Suzano in the state of Bahia, Brazil. Through this act of resistance, members of the MST are denouncing the impacts of existing and planned industrial eucalyptus plantations across the region. For decades, Susano's eucalyptus plantations have caused unprecedented environmental damage, destroying native forests as well as depleting and poisoning water sources, soils, rivers, and nearby communities. Today, Susano continues to rapidly expand its plantations across the region, displacing more communities, destroying more forests, and causing further environmental damage through the aerial spraying of toxic agrochemicals, which gravely harms human health and that of surrounding ecosystems. The MST members have no plans to withdraw from the areas until environmental and social justice demands are met. Under former President Bolsonaro, Susano received permission to develop genetically engineered tree plantations that would cause additional damages to people and ecosystems. For the Earth Minute and Sojourner Truth Show, this is Steve Taylor from Global Justice Ecology Project. And that was our weekly Earth Minute um, with the Global Justice Ecology Project. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We are now going to continue our discussion about what's happening on the ground in Haiti. And uh, our guests uh, in relation to Haiti are Pierre Labossier, co-founder of the Haiti Action Committee, Seth Donnelly, who is a member of the Haiti Action Committee. Now, Seth, um, we filled out 
quite a lot, including his thoughts on where weapons are coming from, et cetera. Um, any thoughts um, you want to add to that before we continue our discussion yep. on what P the points Pierre made earlier? Seth Donald. Absolutely. I wanted to add to, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, data that also of just direct U.S. arm shipments from the U.S. government, as well as those authorized by the U.S. government, the points Pierre was making about the, the influx of weapons coming from the United States. Um, there's a there's an organization, it's the Center for International Policy, and then it has a, a division called the Security Assistance Monitor that tracks official data of U.S. arms flows, security force training to countries throughout the world. And uh, it's at securityassistance.org. And when you look at arms sales to Haiti, it shows a pattern just what Pierre was talking about. So under President Aristide, when um, the human rights situation was dramatically improved around the early 2000s, and the, the army had been dismantled, and there was a very small police force kind of operating more of the Costa Rican model, the United States terminated all aid uh, to the police. Weapon sales were completely terminated at the same time that the U.S. government was weaponizing and funding violent paramilitary contra style um, coming into Haiti and destabilizing the democratic government. At that time of that violence, the U.S. was freezing any kind of weapon sales to the Haitian police to defend the country. Following the coup, weapon sales increase again. And what's particularly interesting in it, around 2013, 2012, U.S. weapon sales skyrocket, and that's precisely when Michelle Martelly, the first PhDK president, comes into power by the United States. In fact, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton maneuvers him into power, and during the following uh, five years of his regime, we see a flourishing of the paramilitary uh, violence. We see the country being flooded by U.S. weapons, and, um, and then after uh, his predecessor, Jovenel Moise, who was in power, as you mentioned, Margaret, when the La Saline massacre happens, all those weapons that the U.S. pumped in are in circulation. So the data is very clear. Uh, that's our tax dollars at work. Haiti has paid such a heavy price uh, since Haiti also, after the revolution, supported Bolivar in the uh, liberating, known as the liberator of Latin America. So uh, it does seem as though the, the core group, these formal colonial uh, states um, really have it in for Haiti, and of course the neo-colonial state uh, like the United States as well. It's in the midst of everything that the Haitian people are up against, uh, just in the next um, couple of minutes, tell us about um, you know some of the good news happening. Um, one, the work of the of the UNIFA, the university there, but also it's it's amazing how the Haitian grassroots people continue, continue to resist. Um, final thoughts. Absolutely. And of course, Seth. you know, you and I were able to see one of the, at one point observe uh, personally flagship university that training doctors and nurses, agronomists, dentists for, uh, for a liberated Haiti someday. And sending those folks out in the meantime to serve the people right away. Haiti, um, the grassroots popular movement embodied by Lavalas, which in Korea, Lavalas means flood. And the idea is each person's a drop of water that becomes a flood for change. 
Lavalos remains, as you mentioned earlier, the most popular political force inside of Haiti. And despite all the repression, people are not backing down. They're continuing to take to the streets. They're continuing to struggle, a courageous nonviolent struggle for uh, a truly independent Haiti and to complete the work of the Haitian Revolution. I think for us in the U.S., um, the key thing for us is to get the U.S. government to stop interfering once and for all, to um, to cut off taxpayer dollars to the to the police, to given that the police are obviously part of the the whole repressive apparatus, to get the U.S. to stop uh, interfering in um, as a public safety to get the U.S. to back out of that process because consistently the U.S. tries to interfere and maneuver opportunists and uh, corrupt members of the elite to take over these kinds of processes. And so we need to get our government to, to once and for all back out. And when that happens, I have no doubt that the Lavalas movement and the broad popular grassroots movement in Haiti will be able to stabilize the situation, to reestablish democracy. Um, and, and that really needs to be, I think, our key push. Uh, the the argument that's being made by the Biden administration and by other members, Ariel Henry dictator that is a true uh, Trojan horse to establish full bridled colonialism inside of Haiti. Haiti is already under colonial occupation. It does not need further intervention by the arsonists that set off the fire in the first place. So our job is to oppose intervention, to oppose U.S. taxpayer dollars pouring into the police, into the regime, and to just support the people to establish their own transition government. And finally, I would add to the listeners, um, both Pierre and I work with the Haiti Emergency Relief Fund. That's uh, an organization that that uh, raises funds to support the grassroots movement. And a lot of, uh, as Pierre mentioned, a lost terror campaign. So we encourage listeners to go to HaitiEmergencyRelief.org, donate what you can so that we can support internal refugees as well as external folks fleeing the country, that we can support the grassroots movement projects. This is what's going to keep the thing moving forward. Right. On that note, we are going to have to leave it there. Um, for our listeners who want to get more information, you can go to the Haiti Action Committee our website, Haiti Solidarity. Uh, I think it's .net. Is that right? HaitiSolidarity.net or is it .org? Anyway, net. Okay. Pielo Bossier, Seth Donnelly. Thank, thank you. Thank you, so, right. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're going to shift gears now to um, what's happening with the environment for our weekly Earth Watch. We want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly Earth Watch and our weekly Earth Minute. And we're going to be discussing the contradictions in the U.S. government plans to log old forests on public lands while at the same time claiming old forests should be protected for climate mitigation. I would now like to welcome our guest, Michael Collette. Michael, welcome. Glad to be okay. here. <laughs> okay. Michael Collette is the founding executive director of Restore the North Woods, a New England-based nonprofit organization that was established in 1992. In 1994, he developed the original proposal for a 3.2 million acre Maine Woods National Park, which laid the groundwork for the 2016 designation of the 
uh, National Monument by President Barack Obama. He co-authored two pending Massachusetts bills that would expand and make permanent reserves on state-owned lands that are protected from logging. He also co-authored the recently published peer review paper, Forest Clearing, to create early uh, successional habitats, questionable benefits, and significant costs. So, Michael, you've been very active. Uh, uh, yes. Explain to our listeners, because this is a big part of this discussion, the difference between conservation and preservation and connect that with um, a national park versus a national forest, Michael. Right, well, um, conservation uh, as it's today used, actually originally conservation meant almost the same thing as preservation, but it's it, the forest industry and other industrial uh, players have created this false dichotomy that uh, saying, well, if you preserve, preservation means just locking it up and not using the land and it's, and people can't go in there and you're not, you know, it's, there are no jobs, et cetera. Conservation means, you know, what they call wise use. And that means exploiting the resources on the land. And it may mean, uh, and what it's become now is it, a lot of even like land trusts will talk about that they're conserving land, and what they mean is it's there's it won't have a Walmart parking lot or a factory built on it, but it, there can be logging, clear cutting, even even you know oil and gas development and other things, uh, and that's called conserved conserved land. So. It, the, the, what people need to do is look at what actually is happening on the ground rather than what a lot of, for example, there, there's a term working forests, which was invented by the forest industry. And what it means is to be working, it has to be logged. And, because, and if it's not working if you just leave it alone and let nature manage it it's it's got to be worked by humans so anyway there's a this this is a, a big problem and it's all you know there's been a hundred years of propaganda by the forest industry and other explo uh, extractive industries to convince people that for healthier when they're logged and you're doing the forests a favor to to quote uh, actively manage them so there's a lot of stuff out there that normal people just want to protect forests. They want to see forests kept intact and they want to let them grow back and they see the value of intact forests, but then they hear this propaganda and often will go along with, with bad uh, projects and programs that they think are good for the forest. Right, okay, thanks for, for explaining that. And now also explain to us this whole discussion that's going on about young versus old forests, because we all know that forests are really important um, for uh, storing carbon. And we, we know that to achieve zero net carbon from the atmosphere. So we know forests are good for that. 
So what is this discussion going on now about young forests versus old forests, Michael? Uh, well, the, uh, you're absolutely right. And the other values of forests that are that are also really important is they pr protect biodiversity. The, they they offer habitat for a wide range of wildlife and plants and and fungi and so forth. They also there's there's recent uh, research that shows that forests are actually good for peop for people in terms of mental and physical health, and that that exposure to nature is actually has a medical beneficial impact on humans. And people may have heard about the uh, uh, nature deficit disorder, which which is a big problem, especially for people in large urban areas that don't have enough natural forests where they can go and they have access and they can get out in natural uh, background. So um, those are all important things for forests. Now, the what what's going on right now is as i said there's there's this propaganda campaign to try to t convince people that forests need to be managed by humans and there are, there's a whole cadre of of foresters and wildlife managers and and interests that benefit from from cutting forests that that are are pushing a new movement a new campaign and the claim is that uh because for well most people probably know that when you know in 16 before 1600 america the forests and you know there were some there were just natural disturbances and natives that had some impacts on the forest but overall they were healthy natural systems that were self-perpetuating. And then European Europeans arrived in 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 most of the most of the now the United States, they cut down all the forests for various reasons. And by the early 1900s in the Northeast and the upper Great Lakes, which is the area we studied, virtually all the forests had been cut down. And there's there there's today there's virtually no old growth intact. However, the, since about 100 years ago, um, a lot of the land that had been converted to farmland has been allowed to grow back because of economics and because people buy the land and actually like forests and want to let the forests grow back. And some of the lands have been uh, our public lands. Uh, um, so those lands are uh, have largely been allowed to grow back, uh, at least up till now. So what, but what now we're being told, oh, well, what's happening is because is all the forests are the same age, they're all about 100 years old. And so we have to, that means that there aren't some species need forests, you know, that have been after a disturbance, a natural disturbance. Uh, and so we have to cut down standing forests uh, to create this young forest or early successional habitat. Um, now there are, couple, there are several problems with that. One is there aren't any species that are endangered because we're not cutting enough forest. In fact, if people look around them, there are all kinds of open areas. 
there are ways in transmission line rights away and and farms and golf courses in people's backyards there's plenty of this young forest habitat and in fact in the northeast before 1600 almost the entire landscape was old growth forest it wasn't there was very little open habitat and so there it's interesting there's a there's a concept called shifting baseline syndrome uh, and what it is is each generation sees grows up with the the way things are and they basically interpret that as normal and so what what we have is we have a bunch of these land managers who grew up in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when there was a lot more open land so what they want to do is recreate that and it just so happens most of them are hunters and clearing uh, younger forests are good for some of the favorite game species and so what's happened is they basically there's this unholy alliance of forestry and wood products and hunting and game management en entities and they have basically captured the management of of most public lands and uh, are proceeding to clear cut large areas of forest. What people, any normal person would walk there and say, wow, this is a forest, this is really nice. And they're clear cutting those, those forests to create right. brush <laughs> for their favorite yeah. species. And, 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 and Michael, I'm looking at the clock, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we, we... We are going to, you know, studies have shown that older trees store more carbon than younger ones. Right. So, you know, the idea then that you're going to cut down old growth uh, trees and, and plant younger ones really just doesn't seem to make sense. But for, no. Michael, for people who want to find out more about this, to read some of your work and also about Restore the North Woods, what should they do? Uh, we have a website, restore.org, and uh, go and read that the paper that we wrote, which you, which is forest clearing, forest clearing to create early successional habitats. And if they type that into Google and use Kellett at uh, all, uh, that probably will get that article. And we tried to make it readable for normal people. A lot of these are, yeah. you know, a lot of these papers are not. But if people are interested, that's where we really go into detail and, and show why this is such a bad idea. Right. Well, thank you so much for that. We're going to continue to um, to cover this really important story. Uh, Michael uh, Collette, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. All righty. We are out of time. Uh, today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott of our board up for today. If you'd like a copy of today's show, contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. Stay tuned for a more programming on your local station. Thank you so much for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and you all remember to stay well and safe.